Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorships. You can get all the details. And if you've got something cool working with V6, we definitely want to hear about it. So come join us on the on the V6 Buzz and we'll get a chance to talk about that. So uh, I'm Ed Horley. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Coffeen. Scott Hogue is out dealing with some training today. So uh, so we, we don't have Scott, but... You know, we're going to we're going to be talking about IPv6 at, at ITF 114 with with our guest Nick Nick uh, Nick Baraglio. So, hey, Nick, how's it going, dude? Going well, going well. I'm back from uh, I'm back from gallivanting around talking about v6. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you presented at ITF 114, right? So, I did. Why don't, you, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of what the heck you presented, why, and and what was going on there? Sure. So over the past probably, I don't know, it's been what, 18 months or so, we've kind of been working an angle uh, on dealing with some of the operational issues with unique local addressing, ULA, specifically some details that are centered around how RFC 6724 is worded and how the uh, you know varying operating systems and platforms have sort of implemented that or not implemented it. So we wrote a draft, a handful of us, and uh, I was nominated as the, you know, requisite mouthpiece to sort of go and and champion this. And so we did. Hey, Nick, I don't know to what extent it's possible to sort of give a nutshell uh, view of like what the what the primary issue or issues are for the, the we have. You know, we talked a lot about ULA on this show and and uh, and some of the challenges that come with it and and sort of some of the operational uh, discouragements with, you know, folks that that might be listening, that might be uh, thinking about how to deploy IPv6 on their own networks. But can you can you give sort of a high level view of what the you know, what the primary or primary set of issues around ULA that you were sort of confronting and, and talking through at uh, at IETF? Absolutely. I'll do you one better. I'll take you on a journey, I'll take you on a journey of how we sort of figured these things out and um, came, you know, came to understand them on our, you know, uh, on our own. Um, you know, I'm sure other people knew about them. You guys probably knew some of the details of that and had talked about it before. But so basically, you know, uh, the TLDR is that if you're deploying ULA alongside legacy IPv4 address space, the way that the, you know, the way that the RFC is written and the way that that vendors and and um, operating systems and platforms have chosen to uh, interpret that and implement it means that when you have a dual stacked network that consists of whatever IPv4 address, doesn't matter, any IPv4 and ULA, you will functionally never use IPv6 because there's a preference table that exists. And that preference table is defined within uh, each operating system. It's loosely sort of suggested how to do it within the RFCs. And because of the way it's implemented, ULA is lower in preference than um, IPv4. So if you've got both address families, which is pretty typical, you know, pretty much every every IPv6 deployment that I've said, not every, but the majority of IPv6 deployments are going to start out at the very least as dual stack, and, and many of them will just stay there. Um, and if you so if you do it that way and you and you use DNS, 
um, as I've always been taught, you know, you, you, you create your A record and your quad A record to be the same so that you let the operating system sort of decide um, based on the assumption, whether it's incorrect or correct, that IPv6 is always preferred. Um, because of the preference table, IPv6 is not preferred for ULA, so it functionally never gets used. Your, you know, your application does a query, it gets an A record and a quad A record returned. My expectation was always that, right, wrong, or indifferent, right? My expectation was always that, oh, if, it's, if it sees a quad A record, it'll just use that, right? Unless there's something written into the application to tell it specifically not to do that, which is supported, you know, it's application specific. But in the case of ULA, that that is the opposite. <clears throat> It'll use IPv4 as opposed to IPv6, which operationally makes it very complicated for you know people that are troubleshooting or support engineers or support personnel or even folks that are implementing things. You know, it makes it difficult because it's not what you normally see when you have a dual stack network. So we wrote this draft that sort of just didn't try to solve any problems. It really just outlined the behavior and um, presented that. And I think because of the way that it was written and presented, you know, it was relatively, relatively well received. Yeah, I, th I think it's really important uh, to point out just as a, a side note too, that if you're using global unicast address space and IPv4, that will work just fine. <laughs> Right. Yep. That that isn't the problem. The problem is the fact that this ULA address space is designated in a specific way in, in RFC sixty seven twenty four that basically is causes. I don't, I don't know if it's un. I, I, we put unintentional. You put unintentional in the in the title for the for the RFC, but I don't know if that's an accurate description as as much as uh, you know. Um, and, Maybe maybe it's uh, unexpected. I don't know in terms of like the I, I, and I agree with you. All our ex expectations were pretty much like, hey, if you have V six set up, it should just use it, yeah. especially if it's supposed to be functional. And and the routing protocols are are using it and forwarding the packets. So that's yeah. that's not the issue. Like you know, the routing networking devices are actually doing what they're supposed to do, which is they don't distinguish between them. It's the host operating systems that are distinguishing between these prefix uh, prefix we're, types, we're, right? Right. You know, there's I, I learned quite a bit about how the internals of this work. And, and actually, I learned a lot about the um, the intention of the authors of RFC 6724, which I think was really important because intention is is hard to relay in a, you know, in a fairly dry technical technical document. So understanding what their intention was, was really helpful in sort of rectifying what the behaviors actually are and because of the intention and because of the way it's worded and and there are some we should also be really clear there are also some pretty egregious inconsistencies in rfc 6724 that need to be fixed um but because of the way that it was intended to function it kind of isn't un, you know uh unintended it's really just a consideration, but, and, and we may change the title of, of the draft. That was actually, it was just adopted uh, on, I believe the 1st of August, uh, 2022. So just this past Monday for going in, you know, by, by, by the clock today. But the, uh, you know, the intention was that if you're gonna use, you know, your own local addressing, 
you'll you'll go in and you'll edit every host and insert that prefix into the table or into the the preference table so the intention and and expectation was that if you're going to use ULA you have full access to all of these hosts and are able to sort of put in your own preference everywhere mm-hmm. on every device which is as we all know fairly unrealistic right um good intentioned but you know that that was really the most pushback that I got when I presented was that it wasn't actually unintentional you know it was it was just not implemented in a way that made it usable yeah and you you know I guess I have some some sympathy for that argument to the extent that you, you're not it's not entirely clear the operational environments that will sort of be unspooling as as time goes forward and you know here's a here's a tool in the belt in the form of ula that might get used in in this environment or that environment uh, but at the same time at this late date it feels like we have a pretty good beat on where enterprise at least at least with enterprise and and, and again i recognize that you know the itf has a, a larger cat to skin in the form of like all the networks that are deploying ipv6 whether they're service service provider enterprise etc but you know it makes the the very salient point that this is really an enterprise issue because it's affecting hosts it's affecting ipv6 hosts um but yeah just not really knowing like what the operational landscape would look like circa 2022 in regards to ula addressing and and my impression from just a little bit of you know reading of the the v6 ops group and and in addressing this draft and talking through the issues is that there's still, I think, some some discussion and some debate around what the intention around using ULA is and what, you know, where it sort of fits into the overall hierarchy. Because there's this, you know, ITF approach of like, let's let's define the let's like basically create documentation that's going to somehow magically suss out all the, the possible operational issues and create sort of all the the avenues to, by which one would solve the problems that one runs into you know deploying a network you know but but that's never of course been realistic and and of course you know over the years it's been like we're getting folks to from the enterprise side of things to sort of chime in on, on how they're actually running running the networks where IPv6 is concerned is, is sort of always been missing. So, so I, I had a point in there somewhere. I don't know where it went. Well, I think evaporated in a pile of words. Um, well, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe you guys get sort of where I'm going with it, which is like, you know, I just really, what is the intention for enterprises that are using ULA and, and how does like the brokenness sort of calculate into that? Well, yeah. I mean, what is the motivation for an enterprise to use ULA? I guess that's that's the fundamental question, right? Is 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 what's what's the motivation for them to do that? And there's been some just quite a bit of debate actually on the mailing list of us all, you know, ourselves included, right? Because <laughs> we've been sort of mailing back and forth around this about, you know, what does that actually what does that actually mean? Why are people trying to use it? And what's the motivations around around uh, using ULA? Because there's clearly there's clearly a set of uh, uh, I don't know, driving principles about why someone would want to use ULA. And uh, it's my guess is, is that they're trying to match some sort of, you know, intentional design mechanism that matches what they're doing with, with, uh, with IPv4, right? I've got RFC 1918 address space. I'm used to doing that. Uh, my design and architecture works this way. How can I match that with IPv6? And I think when you're just cursory first getting introduced to IPv6, you look at ULA and you say like, oh, that's RFC 1918. Oh, that matches my operational principle. Oh, I'm going to hit the easy button. And 
it's not until you start really digging in and figuring out and then actually building labs and figuring this stuff out that you're like, this doesn't work the same. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way about that, but that's, that's at least my gut feeling for where this is coming from for a lot of organizations. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly the questions that I get um, is there's a, there's a high desire to sort of just replicate what's already there. And, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. Like you said, it's an easy button to just say, Oh, I'm just going to do this. It'll be private address. You know, it's the same, it's the same, but it's, you know, it's really not. And, and within the ITF, especially within the, the V6 ops working group, there is a very high desire to, um, I don't want to say vilify, but like, they really don't want there. I think there's a fear that, that the um, end to end principle will be broken. And that, you know, the, the fact that ULA sort of makes using address translation to get to internet resources because it's not routable, you know, that, that becomes something that is a, a bit of a hot topic. Um, and anytime any of these things get brought up, I mean, go look at the list, right? You know, someone on a thread will, will inevitably use it to talk about how we shouldn't do address translation. And, you know, with this particular draft, and in most of them at this point, when I'm involved in those, I try to make a point to just call it out and say, look, let's not make this a referendum on address translation, because that's sort of, that's an execution, that's an implementation detail that is very unique to each individual site. Now, whether they choose to do MPTV6 or whatever, right? Even Masquerade 6, like that's sort of not really the point of what we're trying to talk about here. We're trying to provide a framework that is usable for a variety of reasons. And, you know, the, you know, because it looks a lot like um, RFC 1918 space, that always comes up. All of those discussions all happen all the time because that for that exact reason, and that's really not what it's for, I don't think. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it's for, right? It's non-globally routable, functionally bogon address space that can be right. deployed internally. Yeah, I mean, we can we can talk a little bit about why why we think it's around. I mean, I think there's there's specific use cases that ULA makes sense for, right? Um, oh yeah, for sure. If you're, if you're running V6 only networks, ULA is great. There's no problem with ULA because you only have global unicast addresses and ULA addresses. And depending on what you publish in DNS, you can absolutely have both of those running side by side, and there's zero operational consideration of concern. For, for that configuration. When I've seen ULA deployed in the wild and it's actually production, every single time I've seen it, it's been like a sensor network that is single stacked. You know, right. there's no IPv4 because, you know, there's thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of sensors or, you know, the, the example I always go to is that power meter on the side of your house. That's almost certainly running a ULA IPv6 address and no IPv4. Right. It, it doesn't um, scale topologically though. I mean, if you, if you, Deploy it according to, you know, what the RFCs say. Yeah, but no should. one deploys it. Well, I know, but I'm just saying, that, and this, I, you know, well, let's loop back around to this question about 6724 and, 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 you know, far be it for me to say, folks, you can't have it both ways because clearly everyone wants to have it both ways in multiple ways and they will. <laughs> and, and there's nothing that we can do to stop them and nor should we try. 
but you know it's it's like okay well the 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 fix is in the, you know essentially there there isn't really an operational issue with with uh, with ULA because the language of 6724 is such that and i'm just sort of paraphrasing the argument is that you know it, it it's very specific and if you're doing something operationally you know that that runs into the language in a way that it doesn't work the way that you want it to then that's not really the fault of of the original drafters you know and what they got down in terms of documenting how it's you know how it's supposed to work well okay and then let's look at the rfcs for for ula it's supposed to be you know you're supposed to take it out of the second half of the prefix because it's locally administered you're supposed to randomly generate a 40-bit prefix that you know doesn't get reused anywhere so that there's not overlapping space yeah you, you see where i'm headed with this I mean, this is all stuff that the v6 uh the folks know about about ula and then of course we also know what you just said ed that it just gets deployed willy-nilly it's just like we're going to use it you know, i'm just going to deploy whatever is i'm just going to grab the first prefix that's available and throw it out there and, and so yeah if it's a bunch of sort of dis discontiguous uh, sensor networks, who cares, right? It's it's out there and it's working, et cetera. I'm just making the sort of obviously pedantic point that <laughs> that is violating the standards to do it that way. And, you know, and if you ever, so it's so to say, well, ULA works great. You know, we, you can use it if it's a V6 only network. It's like, well, yeah, okay. But are you foregoing all of the advantages and benefits you would get from, you know, being able to scale the address space up in a way that where it's, you know, contiguous blocks and, and, you know, summarization and ACLs that are tidy and all the stuff that, you know, if I'm, you know, sure, I can do the same thing in, 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 uh, in ULA, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm far away from, yeah. That's just advocating for global unicast address space and just saying, like, just use that. So, I, you know, and I think there's a, an argument to be made that <laughs> that's the correct answer. But, but uh, you know, in terms of in terms of where the ULA problem fits in, I, I just think, you know, Nick started off in the beginning, it's everyone's going to start off with a dual stack network. And if you think you're getting stuff working with V6, because it's been driven into your head that if there's a V6 address on there, it's going to default to using V6 first. Because mm -hmm. which, you know, that's been the cadence and the discussion point for years and years and years is, oh, yeah, well, you got a dual stack network, and you got V6, it's going to use V6 first. That's the statement that's always made. Well, that's not the case with ULA. And I think that's really the, the core definition of what the problem is that's been identified, right? Uh, is really that, that core set of assumptions, which is, which is pretty much yeah. documented. So. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that because of that, it's strange, you know, I got some head shaking when I, when I said that at the, you know, when I was talking at IETF, there were some folks sitting in the, in the front and it could have been that I said 20 years, which I can't remember when the switch flipped within the operating systems to default to V6. It probably wasn't 20 years ago. So they could have been sort of, you know, shaking their heads. Oh, no, so... I said, you know, for 20 years. Before, no, that's probably about V6 right. 3484. That's like 2000. Three, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. 2002. Yeah. 2003. Yeah. Yeah. So roughly, you know. Yeah. But I mean, so I don't know what that what that head shaking that I saw was about when I said that. But you know, that's the behavior that is operationally problematic. You're right, because it's inconsistent. And that's really what the cell was for this, you know, for this draft that we just got adopted was that, you know, we just want to outline this this behavior because so many of us spent so much time fighting and trying to figure out what was going on um 
and it wasn't really clear. And right. finally, you know, looking at the GAI.conf table on the Linux box, we're like, oh, well, now I understand why it's doing what it's doing. Um, and you know, it's not just that too. So that's the biggest part of it. Like that's the, you know, that's the big red button, but there's also um, some inconsistencies, actually it's more than some in the default address selection pieces, you know, pieces of code within varying operating systems, right? So there's not just destination address selection. There's also source address selection because you know, within V6, as everybody knows, you know, you can have a bunch of different V6 addresses and they can be on different, you know, they, one of them can be ULA, one of them can be GUA, but how that address selection works is not always the same across different platforms. And I think that's part of what either needs to be defined or at least needs to be outlined what to expect. Right. And RFC 6724 talks about source destination address selection process. And a lot of people are getting confused with happy eyeballs, which is really only about the destination selection process. Right. And, uh, and not necessarily the sourcing side. And so there's, there's some different things about people thinking that happy eyeballs would modify this in some ways. And it really doesn't. Right. It's a, it's a source destination address selection problem. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. I think there's, there's a lot of challenges that are going on with that. I think there's just challenges with having multiple globally, multiple ratable unicast V6 addresses on a single host, right? Which one do you source from and what's the particular pick order? And that's defined. That's literally what RFC 6724 defines. Um, but I think there's just, you know, I think the fix for this particular problem is probably just a, a small fix on 6724. Um, but that will take a long time <laughs> well, to not, get pushed and, out. And that's right. And not just that, but it's like, do, do we have consistent implementation of 6724 among the, the vendors no. today? I mean, we just no. don't. I mean, we just like no. Mac doesn't, does Mac use it at all? If it does, it, I don't, I don't know that there's any evidence that it does. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I it, there, there has to be, there's some logic in there that may look similar to what the 6724 is, is advocating or, or, or defining. Uh, but yeah. there's no, but there's no GA.com file. There, there's no, uh, you know, prefix policy table that I'm aware right. of. You know, that not not one yeah, that's certainly not exposed to the user. There. Yeah, yeah. So, there's there's something going on in there, but it isn't. And so that's one of the other things that was a little bit difficult to overcome was that you know, in, in speaking to folks that are in the you know the V6 Ops working group, it's that it's easy to go and find an example. Right. You can just spin up a Linux box, you know, a VM or whatever, and you can go and look at all the code. And that's sort of the, you know, to first order, that's what everyone does. So, I mean, it's what I did. Right. Because it's very easy to find the details you want to see as soon as you go outside of that ecosystem. As soon as you're outside of an open source operating system that runs the Linux kernel, all bets are off. I mean, it, you know. Ed's told me many times how to do it in Windows. I've forgotten 30 seconds after he said it every time, but I know it's doable, <laughs> right? It's doable in Windows, but there's no GAI.conf file in there, right? Yeah, it's, it's a fixed policy table that you're modifying with PowerShell, yeah. PowerShell commands or NetSH commands, actually, or you can do it with group policy, but yeah. Right, but how do you do it on Mac? And more importantly, how do you do it on every mobile device that's out there? Because there's a gazillion of those. And how do you do it on the, you know, the, the, 
um, embedded devices, IP cameras, or yeah, the you yeah. know random yeah. other things that probably <laughs> yeah. run that Linux. One, but that one's easy. You no don't. Really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's that was one of the points I was trying to make yeah. is that it's easy to find one use case that works, but it's also very easy to find a hundred that don't. Right. And I think it's the hundred that don't that really was the thing that I, that we had to sort of make very clear like right. sure you know it's it's on the vendors right if you go watch the video of me talking there's a gentleman that is fairly passionate about how the vendors have not implemented some of these things correctly and he's a hundred percent correct but at the same time yeah not you know there are some inconsistencies and how do we how do we deal with the now and the now is let's define what the behavior looks like currently so that people can plan for it. And it will in turn make deploying IPv6 easier. Right. Yeah. Cause you can't solve for the problem space of the vendors. You just can't. Right. You um, can. Yeah. So I, th I think it's a, it's a, it's a super, super important point for people to understand is that it's probably going to take, even if we do a modification for 6724, it's probably going to take 10 to 20 years for that to make it out into the wild for all the, related devices to be anywhere close to getting, I don't know, 70% of devices behaving correctly the way we want them to. Yeah. So we have I mean, to think about other ways to sort of work around this problem. I, the easy answer is don't use ULA. That's the fastest, right. easiest answer, but that's not always going to be the answer that people want to hear, I guess, is, is the other side yeah. of it. It's funny because, you know, one of the folks that, that asked a question, actually more made a comment than anything else, said, you know, is the answer really just use GUA? And as much as I love that answer, you know, I'm not the only person in the world. As much, you know, much to the my own dismay, you know, my voice isn't the loudest, right? It's one of those things that somebody's going to have to use it for some reason that's out of their control, maybe compliance, whatever, doesn't really matter, right? Right. And if they just won't be able to use GUA, and so there needs to be something that defines it. And we, and you know, you guys and, read the, the doc and it, it calls out in there like the time to implement 6724. It's been a decade, literally a de 10 years, and it still isn't completely done. So rather than, you know, try to fix this and say nothing, which we should try to fix it right in 6724. And there's plans to do that. We also need to call out the, you know, the now. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. just not practical to say that that's going to be the final end all be all solution for that. And there, and there are folks that have implemented ULA in commercial products. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. so there's going to be structural issues that go on with this, you know, going forward. So having a document like what you guys have produced is super important for the community because it gives, it gives those vendors and other folks that have implemented ULA uh, and having products that are conforming to to you know what they thought was right in ULA and probably is right in ULA in terms of the prefix uh, preference, uh, it's not behaving the way the quote unquote the end user anticipates or expects, but it is behaving correctly the way the RFCs spec is written, and and they need to be able to point to something and say like yeah the problem you're running into is over here and these guys documented it <laughs> right so maybe you want to reevaluate how you're using ULA or you have to go in and modify the prefix policy table the way the RFC says. Like it's, it's one or the other, right? Yep. And, 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 and figure out how to do that. So I think that's sort of where, where it sort of ends. I mean, what other potential solution, have you guys presented any other potential solutions? Have you been asked to work on something around that side of it or? Yeah, there's been some talk of writing a, um, 
I don't want to call it a best practices document because that isn't really what it is, but I mean, it kind of is. But so there was some talk of changing the current one before it was adopted into a, you know, give us our, give us your use cases and best practices for using ULA. And, uh, you know, I sort of pushed back and said, I think that's another document, you know, that's, yeah, I agree. Um, so I started that yesterday. Um, and you know, there's not much in it yet, but the idea is to at least write down some use cases of what ULA is and how you can use it successfully. And, and also really to kind of outline what it isn't. Right. And the caveats that go along with and it. The if caveats, you decide. Yeah. 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 Well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, well, I, I guess the, the next question is, and we sort of highlighted or talked about it earlier in the show, but uh, you know, what was the outcome from your presentation from the ITF side? I know there, I saw a ton of stuff flying on the mailing list and through my comments in there too, but um, why don't you, why don't you yeah. tell us how things went? So a, a wise man told me that I should say, is there any reason not to do this? And so at the end of my presentation, I asked that question as the last slide and they put it to the list and, um, or is there any reason not to adopt this as a draft, as a working group draft? Um, because there's, as I've been learning over the last 18 months, there's a very sort of, I don't want to call it, there's a structure within the IETF. I don't really totally understand how it works yet. It, it doesn't seem to be really, at least I haven't found any great documentation on what it is, but anyone can write a draft and submit it. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it goes into the IETF's hopper, but for it to become at least recognized, you know, as a IETF draft, it needs to be adopted by the working group that it's submitted in. And then from there, it gets further refined, potentially, you know, changes here and there and whatever. And then eventually it goes up further um, and then becomes, you know, an RFC or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has now made it, you know, based on the, you know, the positive input we got from the list, you know, a handful of, of, you know, very prestigious people said, yes, we'd like that to be, we, we support this adoption. And so it was adopted as an official uh, working group draft, which is really cool. Um, Cause it was, you know, it was a lot of, it wasn't really too hard to write. Um, you know, I had a lot of help. I wasn't the only one that did it. You know, a lot of what was in there actually came from blog posts that you wrote, Ed. So um, I don't know what you're talking was, about. <laughs> yeah, it was really helpful. I mean, a lot of the information came from, came from that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants on a lot of these things. So, you know, we wrote it and that was really kind of the easiest part was just writing it down. The hardest part was just socializing it and really for lack of any better description, defending it. Um, I, you know, I, I really kind of likened it to a PhD dissertation defense where, you know, a lot of questions come in and the people that are asking them are extremely well-versed and very deep in the technology. So, you really have to have the answers or be willing to go find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the, that was the biggest, that was the biggest part of the process. But the, you know, the, the outcome is, you know, long story short, it's been adopted as a working group draft. And um, I suspect there'll be some, some minor iterations to it and we'll see where it goes from there. But then also, you know, because it's been adopted, it is now recognized as something that needs attention and there's a couple other things that have sprung out of it, just like everything in technology, right? You know, everything breeds something new. Right. 
No, but it, I think that's fantastic news. It's it's uh, uh, very much needed in the community side. We've I, I can't tell you how many conversations Tom, myself, and Scott have all had with customers. ULA, ULA, <laughs> and, he, and even some of the biggest cloud providers have, have, you know, we've had private conversations on the side with many of them, you know, discussions around the ULA side and what, what they have to do or not do to support ULA. And, and it's, it, it causes much uh, consternation amongst the industry in terms of what's going on. So having this document will be incredibly useful for just being able to point customers to and say like, you know, caveat emptor, right? You, <laughs> you, know, you, you can take our advice, but here's some documented proof around what we're talking about. If you don't actually believe what we're saying, then you can go read the RFCs yourself, right? Well, and that it comes from, you know, the actual up, up real world of operations, you know, and having a voice that's coming from that side of things, um, you know, that's that's not so fixated on on just you know being consistent within what the the protocol drafts say and, and thinking about and 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 to be fair, I mean, there's a lot of that discussions happening on around this particular issue, but there is de there is definitely, you know, I think there's operations through the through the lens of you know what the what the protocol standards say versus the lens of actually having to go out and run a big network and and the the types of issues that you run into. So it's, it's very valuable to have that perspective and to have documentation coming out of the IETF that's, that, that, that has that at its, at its root. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nick's running a large V6 only network. It's, I, I think he's able to address a lot of questions that folks say directly in the room and sort of mm -hmm. put them in their place. <laughs> saying like, you know, this is, this is my operational experience with this. And, uh, and you know, it, it doesn't hurt that, you know, Chris and, and Russ are on board uh, as, as co-authors for the RFC too. So they can definitely have, you know, pragmatic approach to, to, to that voice side of, or around it. And, you know, I don't know if folks would necessarily listen to me hollering up and down in regards to that. You know, like he's a consultant, he's crazy anyway. So, <laughs> so well, I mean, it, you know, I don't think it hurts. You're right that, you know, I'm doing this stuff and I'm working at a very large scale. Um, but Again, it's I'm I consider myself mostly just the mouthpiece, right? Like I don't mind getting in front of people and letting them throw stuff at me, but you know, it's it is what it is. Yeah, you, you got know, a thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so here's another interesting tidbit. Um, I'd be, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I have not already been approached by one very very large vendor that said, "Thank you for detailing this out." This will be really useful internally for us. So great. I was really, that was a positive interaction that I had. Um, Good. And, and really every, every interaction that I've had outside of, you know, just having to, I wouldn't say it's negative, but like just having to sort of explain what's going on and, and sort of justify the, what, you know, what we wrote, it's all been very positive. So I I'm enjoying working in the IETF. Like I think I finally hit a stride where I think I can do something good and I plan oh, to just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know with, with that, I mean, how do folks keep track of what's going on? Cause I, I think that's a big mystery for a lot of people. Uh, where can they, can they send comments to you? Can they, obviously they can join the V6 ops mailing list on the ITF side, but, uh, and we'll provide the link to the actual now official draft link, as opposed to the one that had, you know, your, your name in it in front <laughs> as part of the as part of the name section. So it's now a draft dash ITF dash V6 ops dash ULA. So congratulations, you got that uh and, and and you can check the show notes 
And I'll provide a link to the to the blog that you mentioned, Nick. It was uh, Infoblox blog that I did around the great blog. I highly recommend reading it. But yeah, if folks want to follow along, just just watching the V6 Ops mailing list group is is good. There's also a group that is dedicated to just this draft that you can join if you go and follow the link that'll be in the show notes. Um, and that really is just the authors and I think the the uh, B6, the working group leads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you can follow along there too. So be more specific or you, if you don't feel comfortable uh, with, you know, interacting on the larger list, feel free to use ours. And you feel free to reach out to me directly too. I'm, I'm notoriously bad at email, but I do respond. It just might be a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Get you up on Twitter or on a Slack channel will probably be faster, right? So yeah, I'm on a bunch of different Slacks. I'm I'm really easy to find. I'm on Twitter, and I've actually been looking at it a little more lately. So I mostly focus around this V6 stuff. So you know, I'm, I'm around, and I'm happy to answer any questions. And 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 again, I'm not. Uh, I'm also very open to being incorrect about things. So if you think that I'm wrong about something, it's tell me. You know. Just be cool. Be Fonzie about it, you know, and I'm happy to get wrong. <laughs> well, apparently everyone thought you were wrong on the title, which I'm partially to blame because I think I recommend that as original title for the thing. <laughs> Not a problem. Pushback other than the couple people that said it wasn't unintended. Um, right. So no one has actually suggested changing the title, but I think I might do it anyway, just because just I think it would be um, a little more, just soften the, the verbiage a little bit. I think yeah. it'd be useful. Well, you know, given the fact that you have a friend who wrote RFC sixty seven twenty four. Yeah. That was that was interesting. Uh, too funny. So the history behind that is that I'm on another working group uh that's you know uh for some scientists and um I put into the working group, you know, here's this thing that we wrote, right? Detailing RFC sixty seven twenty four and and uh basically some behaviors that were unintended with ULA. And I realized like one of the authors is actually participates in that too. Cause he runs in the academic circles that I do. And I was like, Oh, I didn't mean it. Like I wasn't like trying to say anything bad. I mean, I didn't say anything bad, but you know, I, I just made sure that he knew like, Hey, I'm not, even though this baby's kind of ugly, I'm not saying it out loud. Right. <laughs> you know, just you just did. He's, a, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And a very nice guy too. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm I'm sure Dave Thaler doesn't care one way or the other on the Microsoft side. He's like, uh, you know, if they read it carefully, you know, you would understand everything that's going on, but it's not my fault. Folks aren't reading it carefully, right? So yeah. <laughs> I do just, not know that that person. That's that's not the person I'm talking. Yeah, Dave Thaler is, uh was I think one of the I think he was one of the co-authors that if not, he was for thirty four eighty four. Thirty four eighty four, you know, yeah. Yeah, 3484. So, but Dave is like, he's brilliant. He he was the one who rewrote the networking stack for Windows. So, nice. up at Microsoft, just a minor little project effort there. Yeah, just small. <laughs> just no one will notice. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Dave and, and uh, Abilati and the rest of the crew up there who rewrote all the stack for, for, for Vista. Even though Vista was hated and despised, the networking stack was was completely rewritten from the ground up for for that going forward, which is what everything is running on today. Well, hey, you guys, is there anything else we wanted to cover? Anything else you wanted to chat about, Nick, around the sort of that, you know, what you submitted and how it went through and everything else? I think uh, it was I mean, very I successful. Just, I should just thank everybody that helped, you guys included. You know, this, like I said, I was really just the front man 
there was a whole bunch of people that worked on this and made it happen and it wouldn't have happened without every single one of them. So a, uh, a heartfelt thank you uh, is, is definitely in order. Oh, very cool. Well, hey, unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast. So thanks to today's guest, uh, Nick Baraglio. So how can the audience follow you on the internet? I think we mentioned before, but let's switch your Twitter, hand, Twitter handle. Oh, Twitter handles at forwarding plane and I have forwardingplane.net. It's a blog that doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> when was the last time you blog posted up there? <laughs> well, so related to that, I I cross post the, the the modem show podcast there. So it makes me feel Oh, you're cheating. <laughs> I know I'm totally cheating. I'll take it. Cool. I was really excited. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write down i'm going to figure out how to do MacSec on microtik which is brand new right they just implemented it in the newest operating system so i sat down like two nights ago and i was like i'm gonna do this and i got it and it, it doesn't work yet like it's all the commands are there but like it doesn't actually work so i was gonna blog all that it was my whole big plan so on the upside it did get me to create the github repo for the you know ula uh, use cases so because well, that didn't work, I started on the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, do do a quick plug for your for your for your podcast because you do you do host a podcast on a regular basis. So why don't, why don't you tell tell the audience what what that one is? Yeah, we have a we have a podcast called Modem Show, and it's just you can go to Modem Show, or you can go to any any pod, you know, any podcast uh, provider, Apple and Spotify. It's it's everywhere. Um, and we, we do like deep dive technical, um, take aparts and we've started doing something called stop and chat, uh, which is, you know, somebody just comes on and talks about what they're working on. Uh, cause in the summertime, it's hard for us to get the motivation to do the content. So we tend to take, <laughs> we, you know, we tend to do the European model where we take a lot of the summer off. Um, so we, we started doing those other things, but it's just modem.show and you can find okay. it. It's got a cool retro, uh, website that i'm pretty proud of yeah the look of that site is awesome <laughs> very cool all right well you can reach the ipv6 buzz podcast on twitter it's at ipv6 buzz you can also hit up each one of us on twitter uh, tom is at ipv6 tom scott is at scott hogan i'm at e horley thanks for listening to the ipv6 buzz you can find us in the packet pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps uh, just search for ipv6 buzz and if you like this show please just give us a rating on iTunes. That's probably the best way. Um, if you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.